0: God, please give them health and strength, and and protect us all. I want to mention briefly before I move into the into the sermon, and I guess Kyle, are you queuing up the the PowerPoint for me? That's fine. We've got we've got time because I want to share just a little bit about uh, our how our prayer walk went on Wednesday and Thursday, and encourage you all. That's going to be a continuing practice, and. Um, We'd love to have uh, more of y'all who are uh, able to join us. We had, uh, I mean, not counting repeats on on Thursday, we had a total of over 20 people walking through the surrounding neighborhoods of this community and praying and discerning and then processing together and, and of course, uh, eating together. And um, it's a blessing, and it's eye-opening. And it's important. Uh, It's important in ways that perhaps you can't quite grasp until you jump in and then experience repeatedly the process of walking with the Lord through a place and knowing that He's there before us, that He's already working, and trying to imagine. Uh, what it means to join Him in that work. Got there? Okay. So, uh, we're going to continue talking about prayer. And this morning in particular, I want to talk about discipleship in prayer. We'll be focused on the Lord's Prayer in uh, Luke chapter 11. If you want to go ahead and turn there, but we'll be looking at a number of passages. I've tried to put everything up here just so that uh, we don't have to hustle too much back and forth. I know that's a, that used to be a pretty common practice, right, flipping here and there, uh, but I think you'll find the, the exercise this morning is mostly contained within very sort of um, inherently connected texts as we look at the Lord's Prayer. Lord be there for me when I call, that last song that we sang, uh, I requested because I have a deep connection to it. It was the summer after my junior year of high school, I was working for Enron, you can go to the next slide, Uh, yes, that Enron. If you're too young to get that joke, just know that uh, it was a debacle in in our national economy. I was copying oil well survey logs. That's what you see over here, these long geological survey documents uh, from companies that Enron had acquired. My job was to stand all day, every day, in front of an old copy machine, uh, which I named the GOAT because it would eat anything you put in the feed tray, and, uh, and repeat the same motions over and over. Lift, place, close, press. Lift, place, close, press as a living, right? During that time, I happened to read First Thessalonians 5:17: "Pray without ceasing." And as I pondered what that meant, I realized for the first time in my life, I was uh, daily occupied for hours at a time with an activity that I could carry on while praying. So I decided to experiment with constant prayer in a pretty literal sense. It was a Tuesday when I began, and as long as I stood at the copier, I prayed for three days. I don't remember exactly what I, what I prayed about, but I, I can guess, I know myself. I, I prayed about prayer, about becoming prayerful, about my sin, my hopes for the future, my friends. Feelings for the girl who'd broken my heart, money, school, and anything else that was pressing in at the time. Knowing myself as I do, I don't doubt that I also prayed about being bored with prayer and irritated at the impracticality of praying ceaselessly. But I persisted to the best of my ability. At the end of three days, I got off work Went to play one-on-one basketball with one of my best friends before we headed to our Thursday night Bible study, uh, or youth group gathering, better better said. This is uh, Fish, which we named our our current youth group gathering after, Fellowship in Someone's House. Um, Whenever I can, I try not to innovate, and so I thought that was already a good name. For whatever reason, I was really looking forward to playing ball, and when we got to the court, My friend had some kind of issue with his car that we ended up uh, spending the entire time working on. and never got to the game. And as we worked, uh, my annoyance turned into frustration and then anger and then seething anger. Disproportionately seething anger. And I acted like a jerk. Just a selfish, childish jerk. To, you know, use the, the the kinder language here. And then I became angry for a different reason because I felt so deeply disappointed that after three solid days of prayer, my character could be so vacillating. I wasn't disappointed with just myself. I mean, there was plenty of self-loathing mixed in as a teenager. I was also hurt that God would be so obviously disinterested in my expressed longing to become a godly man, I was distraught that prayer made no difference. I arrived at Fish glum and wrung out. And there was no greater joy in my life at that time than worshiping with the youth group. So it was the only place I really wanted to be. Any given Thursday night would be 30 to 40 high schoolers crammed into someone's living room. That night I remember we were at Sarah Dean's house and we were overflowing into the kitchen and I sat out there on the periphery, quiet and introspective, and it happened to be a night that the youth minister uh, had another commitment, but nothing could stop us from gathering to worship. And so it was another one of the student-led nights, and that meant that we sang and sang and sang and sang. And I was hurting and asking God what the point of prayer is. And then one of the girls started, Lord, be there. And suddenly I felt the presence of God. I knew the presence of God in a way I never have since, Uh, or before, and I wept like I never have since. It seemed to me that as I sang the words, and I know you'll always be there, God replied, yes, with a presence so overwhelming and so absolutely affirming that I uh, just don't know how to describe it in words which is part of the reason I've never shared that story. I don't think it means anything uh, much to anybody else. I don't think it means anything more than that affirmation, that yes, which I needed in a deeply personal way in that moment. And I've always felt it was given graciously as a concession to that need rather than as some kind of quid pro quo for days of prayer. And honestly, the whole story is a bit embarrassing, but I share it, uh, personal as it is, because it represents a reality that we face. When it comes to prayer, there are tremendous barriers to our discipleship. And this story highlights one in particular, and I want to add two more. So let's go to the next one. I think this first barrier is fundamentally fear, the fear of risking disappointment with God. Discipleship in prayer is about faith. That seems like an obvious thing to say, but I think we need to get our minds and hearts around the fact that faith here means trust in God despite the mystery of the ways in which God works. Trust despite appearances, despite disappointment. And I think we often find a barrier after some time praying to God, a barrier of disappointment, of thinking, why do this again? Why ask? What difference did it make? Because the difference that it makes is a mystery to us so often. Now praise God for the the times that our prayers are answered in plain ways. I'm not denying that that happens. And, And I think we should celebrate those times very publicly and bear witness to them, to each other and to the world. But I recognize, and I think you do too, how frequently we ask in good faith and receive silence. We're left with how long, O oh Lord. How long? But there's a second barrier. second barrier, I would say, is pride, is the, the sensation that we don't need prayer for success in our endeavors. And so discipleship in prayer is about dependence learning dependence, learning to rely on God for what we cannot accomplish ourselves despite all that we can accomplish ourselves. Because the Lord has given us a great deal of ability, of capacity, of gifts, of strength. And having given those, we, we go into the world and we do and we think, I can do this look what i did and so the failure to depend on god for all that we cannot do for ourselves becomes another barrier to prayer why why pray when i know i can do it and then a third preoccupation i think many of you will recognize this one i don't have time for prayer I certainly don't have time for the six hours of prayer that John mentioned last Sunday. I hardly have time for one hour. I hardly have time for 15 minutes. I got a lot going on. A lot to do. And so I think discipleship in prayer is about attention. Attention to God. Learning to be present with God before everything else, despite the importance of everything else. It's not that all of the stuff going on and, and, and clamoring for our attention and taking up our time is a bunch of foolish nonsense. It's stuff we need to do to survive, to be the kinds of parents and children and grandparents we should be, to be diligent in our studies and our work. We need to do these things. And work is good. And doing the laundry is good. Spending time with your kids. It's good. But despite the importance of all of that, I think discipleship and prayer calls us to attentiveness to God in a deeper way. So I want to look at Luke 11 to 4. He was praying in a certain place. And after he had finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, Teach us to pray, as John taught his disciples. He said to them, When you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread. And forgive us our sins, for we ourselves forgive everyone indebted to us. And do not bring us into the time of trial. So the first thing I want to highlight, I want to point out to you, I don't know if you've ever thought about this, but the example of Jesus is not enough. The example of Jesus is not enough. The disciples, at this point in the story, have been following Jesus very closely for a long time through a number of unbelievable experiences. The example is there present to them, but they still come to this moment where they have to say, okay, now teach us how to pray. I've been watching you do it, Jesus. I've seen you, but... But teach us how. Discipleship is more than looking at an example and copying it. So look where we are in Luke's narrative. I want to be sure that, that you understand what I'm saying about what they have experienced. Go to the next one. These are all of the instances of prayer in the Gospel of Luke now this is a lot of information I'm not trying to overwhelm you but I just want you to I want you to look at where the underlined passages that's where we are and look at everything that precedes it all that they they've experienced and been taught already does not mean that they don't have a deep deep need to ask Jesus to teach them how to pray Small aside here. Um, I, I prepared um, a spreadsheet that sort of lays out all of the instances of prayer in the gospel and side-by-side columns, and I want to make that available to you. You can go here, scriptureandmission.com/slash-jesus-prayer, if you want to download that. There's a couple different formats. If not, no big deal. But I just thought since we're we're focused on prayer right now, this might be useful to you to to look at the Gospels, and in particular, it's sort of fun to note um, the places where each of the Gospel writers adds something that the others don't in regard to prayer, and the places where they uh, uh, agree with one another, that they, they, they are sure to both, or all three, or even all four, one time mention that uh, Jesus prayed or taught about prayer in such and such a way. So I hope that's a useful resource to you. That's just an aside. So we can, we can keep going here. Um, we're at a moment in which the, the disciples, both the twelve, the most in intimate, the apostles, and the seventy have already gone out in mission. It's after that that they go, oh, wait a minute, Jesus, teach us to pray. And that's a really important thing to notice as we unfold what's going on in this instruction. By the way, Luke emphasizes prayer more than the other gospel writers. Um, there are uh, those yellow uh, examples, there are 13 of those that are uniquely Luke's contribution. The other Gospels don't have them. Uh, Matthew makes two such unique contributions, and Mark makes two such unique contributions. And so Luke is very attuned when he tells this story to making sure the church hears about prayer even more. So that's why I, I decided to focus on Luke's account of the Lord's Prayer rather than Matthew's account of the Lord's Prayer, Lord's prayer and, and, and think about how Luke has positioned us in this story to learn from Jesus. So at at this point, not only the 12, but the 70 have engaged in significant mission work, and now they ask Jesus to teach them to pray, and this seems to me to be a breakthrough, a defeat of pride. Because success in ministry, or in life for that matter, can be profoundly deceptive. One of the two places that Mark adds to this story happens right before this after Jesus comes off the Mount of Transfiguration and finds a boy who's demon-possessed who needs to be healed. Luke tells the story as well, but Mark adds an important detail. When the disciples are unable to cast the demon out of this boy, Jesus does it in frustration. Luke has him lamenting uh, in a special way the faithlessness of Israel, including his disciples, apparently. But Mark adds that the disciples said, Why couldn't we do this? And Jesus says, This kind can only come out with prayer. Which is meant, Mark is trying to get us to see the disciples, fools that they are, were trying to cast out a demon without praying to God. They had been given authority and power and commissioned and sent, and Jesus said, go and proclaim the gospel and heal and cast out demons and proclaim the kingdom of God. And so they had gone, and in great power, with the authority of Jesus, they had done so successfully, and they had come back and said, yes, it works. And then Jesus went up on the Mount of Transfiguration, and while he was gone, the Nine who remained behind encountered this boy, demon-possessed, and thought, yeah, we can do this, and didn't even bother to pray. That's the deceitfulness of success. That's the pride that mission itself can engender in us when God blesses our work and then we come back and think, well, I don't need to ask God for anything anymore. They admit the example of Jesus, the authority given them, their success in proclaiming the kingdom with power just, it it cannot make sense of their failure to make the essential request of the disciple. Lord, teach us. go to that next one just have Jesus praying as a background here for a moment see discipleship is the assumption of a posture and a commitment that of the student who seeks to learn how to be and that's why we as we contemplate the Lord's prayer we can't ask only what Jesus teaches us to think about how to pray We have to also ask what he teaches us about becoming a people of prayer. Another way of putting this is to imagine what prompts the disciples to finally make this request. What are they seeing when he was praying in a certain place? Have you ever been astonished by someone's prayer? I'm reminded of a habit of one of my professors. Anytime he would speak after a notable prayer, he would comment You can tell he's prayed before, can't you? Which is an odd thing to say. Of course he's prayed before. But the oddity called our attention to the quality of the prayer of one disciple in what the author Eugene Peterson calls a long obedience in the same direction. You can tell. You can tell when someone has that intimate, ongoing conversation with God. And so I can only imagine what it must have been like to witness Jesus at prayer. What I can't imagine, and go on to the next one. What I can't imagine is why they weren't overwhelmed by the need to make this request much earlier. As I've said, I suspect pride and the deceptiveness of success played a role, but I also think at this moment they've just had a significant realization. One of Jesus' teachings seems to have landed for a change. So look at the passage immediately preceding the Lord's Prayer. This is the story of Mary and Martha hosting Jesus. Ten thirty-eight to 42 did we get that one yeah okay so you may not know this story many of you do but if you don't it's it's short but it, it goes like this jesus comes to their house two sisters and uh, martha is doing the work of a hostess and frantically trying to make it the right kind of experience for the people in her home and mary is sitting there listening to jesus and Martha complains and says, Lord, not fair. And this is the Lord's, the Lord's response. Martha, Martha, you were worried and distracted by many things. There is need of only one thing. Mary has chosen the better part, which will not be taken away from her. Remember, discipleship in prayer is about attention, and Mary is the patron saint of paying attention. But also note that Martha is doing significant work. It it, it would be difficult to overstate the spiritual meaning of hospitality in the New Testament, especially in Luke's Gospel. It's precisely Mary's attention to Jesus despite the missional significance of hospitality work that appears to have awoken the twelve to the need to ask Jesus about prayer. What is that necessary one thing? Are we paying attention? Finally, given Jesus' response, not only in the model prayer itself, but in the teaching that follows and explains it, the disciples seem to be asking the key question, which I think is, what does it mean to pray like you pray, Jesus? What does it mean to pray like you pray, Jesus? The request is pretty vague, right? Go to the next one, just to keep the text in front of us. Teach us to pray might mean teach us what to pray or how to pray, how long? How often? In what position? Or any other, any any number of other formal details, right? I mean, it's not. What are they asking exactly? Well, I think the previous recorded prayer, which is up here on the screen in Luke, gives us a clue as to what was likely on their minds. The seventy have just returned successfully, celebrating their participation in the inbreaking kingdom of God. And Jesus joins them in rejoicing. At that same hour, Jesus rejoiced in the Holy Spirit and said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because you've hidden these things from the wise and the intelligent and have revealed them to infants. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father. And no one knows who the Son is except the Father or who the Father is except the Son and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Jesus' prayer is marked by an explicitly unique relationship with the one he calls Father. It's only natural, having listened to him pray this way, probably other times too, to wonder whether this is the nature of the the, the, the disciples' relationship to God as well. Does the son's revelation of the Father mean the son's faith is translatable, transferable, should we, too, trust God as Father? And if so, what does that mean for how we pray? I asked this last question with an eye cast back to my high school self, bitterly disappointed in prayer and wondering whether, in the end, I could know that God will always be there when I call. Some of you have fathers in your lives who demonstrated what that kind of faithfulness looks like. In human terms, no doubt, but even so. Others of us do not. To the contrary, Father is a bitter word on our tongues. And unfaithfulness is its persistent connotation. God, how I long to pray, Father as Jesus does. So I'm grateful that Jesus acknowledges in the ensuing teaching, particularly in 11.13, the fundamental contrast between God and every other father. He's not naive to this difficulty. Is there anyone among you who, if your child asks for a fish, will give a snake instead of a fish, or if the child asks for an egg, will give a scorpion. If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him? That contrast is important, but I'm getting ahead of myself, and we'll likely return to this passage at some point in our sermon series on prayer My point here is simply that I think the disciples have finally come to realize that all their wrestling with fear and faith hinges on the son's relationship to the father. And specifically, what that has to do with their need to learn to pray from Jesus. So with the the time remaining, let me share what I think the Lord's Prayer teaches us about discipleship. Discipleship in prayer is a practice of trust in, dependence on, and attention to Jesus' Father, our Father. First of all, I think Jesus teaches us to pray that the Father's name be revered as holy in all the world. Now what you see up there in the translation, that's the NRSV, hallowed, that's antique language, unfortunately, and although some translations use sanctified instead, uh, I think that's little better in contemporary English, frankly. So what does it mean to revere the Father's name as holy? That's my translation. I think familiarity with the uh, prophet Ezekiel helps. 36, 22 to 23, the book of Ezekiel. Therefore say to the house of Israel, thus says the Lord God, it is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I am about to act, but for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations to which you came. I will sanctify my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, and which you have profaned among them, and the nations shall know that I am the Lord, says the Lord God, when through you I display my holiness before their eyes. I think Jesus is teaching his disciples to pray this prophecy. Prophecy. To say Father in prayer like Jesus is to speak to the God of Israel who makes His holiness known through the unrelenting grace that brings us all into intimate communion with God. To say Father is to pray as those who know the Father revealed through the Son to be our Father too according to His loving kindness. How do we pray like Jesus? We pray to God as the Father who wills to be the Father of all, just as he is Jesus' Father. It's not unprecedented in the Old Testament to refer to God as the Father of Israel. I can point you to Deuteronomy, Isaiah, Psalms. But Jesus tells his disciples, Say, Father. Knowing that in becoming your father, his holiness will make him known as the father of all. Through you, his holiness as father will be known to all. Pray for it. This leads us second to asking for the kingdom's coming. The coming kingdom is a theme throughout Luke. Indeed, its arrival, the kingdom's arrival, is Jesus' own definition of the gospel. You can see that in chapter 4 and chapter 8. In his instructions to the 12 and to the 70, proclaiming the arrival of the kingdom in word and deed is the essence of their mission. This, then, is not just the prayer of those waiting for God's intervention someday, but that of participants in the present inbreaking of God's rule in our very midst. Like Jesus, we pray as instruments of God's kingdom, declaring it, manifesting it in healing, liberation, forgiveness, generosity, mercy, and the sure hope of its fulfillment. To pray your kingdom come is to pray as God's sent people. Third, Jesus teaches his followers to pray with absolute dependence on what only God can provide. I suspect the request for daily bread is difficult for most of us. We who live in an unprecedented level of economic security. I've been poor by American standards. Most of my childhood was spent below the poverty line as the government defines that. And I've lived among the truly poor who live with daily food insecurity. I know the difference. I know how hard it is for us here to make sense of the prayer give us our daily bread i can buy it myself but there's no mistaking the literal sense of poverty in Luke's gospel 6:20 states blessed are you who are poor for yours is the kingdom of god and throughout the gospel of Luke Jesus is interested in blessing the materially poor with economic liberation. So I don't want us to underestimate the importance of praying this prayer, give us our daily bread, in solidarity with those who need the kingdom to come and transform the injustice of our economic world. It is vital that we pray, give us our daily bread, with those who need daily bread. So that us is transformed through mission into the blessing of the poor. That's part of what it means to pray like Jesus. Another part, however, which is deeply connected to that first dimension, is to recognize the oddity of Jesus' language here, which you, you couldn't do through a translation, so let me just do that professor thing for a second. The word commonly translated daily, daily bread, in this prayer is unique to Luke. But I mean unique to Luke in the sense that you can't find it in the rest of Greek literature. So that makes it hard to triangulate a meaning if you're someone who compiles a meanings of words into dictionaries. Um, many interpreters believe, rightly in my opinion, that its, its sense is best understood in relation to the radical transformation of our world that we call the kingdom, translating it instead as coming, the coming bread, or the bread of the coming day. As one of Jesus' dinner guests puts it later in Luke 4.15, blessed is anyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. There's a vision of this coming bread, the satisfaction of all hunger. And these words call our minds to Isaiah 25. On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food a feast of well-aged wines of rich food filled with marrow of well-aged wine strained clear and he will destroy on this mountain the shroud that is cast over all people the sheet that is spread over all nations he will swallow up death forever when the lord god then the lord god will wipe away the tears from all faces and the disgrace of his people he will take away from all the earth for the Lord has spoken. See, I think Jesus teaches us to pray for the bread of the coming day, the day of fulfillment that is breaking in already every day in the nearness of the kingdom that we proclaim in word and deed. To pray like Jesus is to ask again today That God prepare us a kingdom feast today. That He today swallow up death in resurrection life. That He today wipe away our tears. That's what it means to pray every day. God, give us the bread that You've got coming for us. Fourth. Jesus teaches us to ask for forgiveness in accordance with our own imitation of God's grace. Once more, uh, the theme of forgiveness runs throughout Luke's story. But the critical issue for us who are trained to think of forgiveness as a transaction, I think that's true. I think culturally we're shaped to think about forgiveness as a transaction. I think we're shaped to think that God thinks it's a transaction because of the sacrificial system in the Old Testament, poorly understood, as though we do certain things so that God will forgive us. So I think it's important for us to resist that false construal of what Jesus models for us here. He's already told us what it means to be children of the Father. Look back at chapter 6, verse 35 and 36. But love your enemies, do good, and lend, expecting nothing in return. Your reward will be great, and you will be children of the Most High, for He is kind to the ungrateful and the wicked. Be merciful. Just as your Father is merciful. We forgive debts, literal and ethical, not so that God will forgive us when we ask, but because we we already, church, we already live in the Father's own merciful economy. We live by mercy and pray in mercy. To pray like Jesus is to speak to this Father, the God of mercy, asking humbly for and offering that on which we all depend. Gratuitous forgiveness. This is a prayer of disciples who live in the economy of God's mercy. And finally, Jesus teaches us to pray for protection. This prayer calls for deep sobriety about participation in the mission of God. For this is the prayer of Jesus, who was led by the Spirit into the desert explicitly, in order to be tested. It's the same word there and here. To be tested by the devil. And the Jesus who set his face toward Jerusalem, back in chapter 9, verse 51, and therefore toward the trial of the cross. The cross which he calls us to take up daily and follow him in that same chapter, chapter 9. See, there's a measure of trial inherent in our discipleship. But to pray like Jesus is to learn to say, Father, if you're willing, remove this cup from me, yet not my will, but yours be done. Again, I think we'll probably spend some time in Gethsemane in the course of this sermon series But for now, I'll just mention that twice in the midst of this agonized prayer in the garden, Jesus tells his followers again, pray that you might not come into the time of trial. This is when the disciples are falling asleep while Jesus prays about his own trial. Our wakeful prayer for God's protection is the Lord's command because not every trial is God's will. But we're prone to fall asleep while Jesus prays instead of praying like Jesus. The Father desires to protect us, but staying awake to the risks we run as Jesus' followers is our responsibility. That's what it means to pray. Don't lead us into temptation, trial, hardship. We'll shoulder the cross when it comes, but we have to trust God to protect us from everything that's not actually the cross. I want to be forthright about this season of prayer As we've called it. My hope is that it catalyzes our participation as the Stones River Church in a movement of God's Spirit, not only in our church, but in our city. I I pray that we will lean into God's mission in a new way. But let's be clear. like the 12 and the 70, we can go out in mission, experience joyful success, and still need to be discipled in prayer. This season of prayer is therefore not about a sequence, as though if we pray, then we'll have success, however we might measure that. It's instead an invitation to the humility And the awe that leads us to confess that Jesus prays in a way we have yet to learn. So I invite you to pray the Lord's Prayer with me. Now, if you don't mind standing, and in the coming months. Let's pray together. Father, hallowed be Your name. Your kingdom come, Give us each day our daily bread, and forgive us our sins, for we ourselves forgive everyone indebted to us, and do not bring us to the time of trial. Amen.